Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast with Nick and the Doctor, sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built on the mission to serve coffee and culture to people who love America. Today, we're going to be talking wildlife cooperatives with Shane Matzenbacher. Shane is a deer outreach specialist with here with us here at the National Deer Association. So always good to have staff on. Uh, he has a really cool job description, which he's going to tell us about that entails many things. But again, the focus will be uh, co-ops. So looking forward to doing that today. That is, by the way, a listener requested topic. And so if you've thought of topics you'd like us to cover or thought of guests that you'd like us to have on, or if you'd like to be a guest and you have a cool story to tell us, let us know and we'll get you on. We also have the B-Team report. And I know I've got several to pick from. I'm sure the doctor has done something <laughs> that, that he'll tell us about. Uh, and also a reminder, next episode will be an Ask NDA Anything episode. So get us your questions. We already have some that have come into my inbox. So don't forget to send your questions to nick at deerassociation.com. All right, enough from me. Let's say hello to a man that is making pancake lovers dreams come true. The doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. And, and you're laughing, Mike. So I bet you didn't expect that one. I, I did not. I was expecting uh, who knows? I mean, these, these things are almost like, <laughs> you know, opening a box of Cracker Jacks and what prize am I going to get today? It's going to be the little magnifying glass or, but um, yeah, just finished up my very first inaugural run of making pure maple syrup from our property. So, and you got to benefit from that. Did you try it yet? I have not tried it uh, because I, I want to do it the right way. Like I'm, I'm envisioning, so I've got this venison bacon. Mm-hmm that uh, Mark's Meats makes out in Delaware where I hunt. And so it's awesome. So I'm envisioning some venison bacon with some pancakes and syrup over everything. Okay. So I want to do it right. Like I don't want to, you know, just like dip my toe in the water. I want to go all in and try it and just shaking it. It has that sound that it's nice and thick. And so I don't know. Have you, have you tried it? What do you think? We did. Uh, I made uh, two batches just because of the way that I was trying to boil and, um, I, I was really shocked. It really surprised me how we kind of become numb and, and no offense to anyone that makes, you know, maple syrup from corn syrup or in whatever the other things are. But I know pure maple syrup is expensive, but I was actually really, but we had it warm too, which made it even more pleasing. So my wife and I, uh, she made some cinnamon rolls really quickly and she goes, well, let's just try it. We drizzled some over the cinnamon rolls and that was our first taste of it. Other than just, um, we sampled it, um, on a spoon just to see the original flavor without it being unadulterated and really liked it. So it was well worth the time. It's very time intensive. And, um, I, you know, want to say, you know, big thanks to Matt Ross from the NDA who's mentored me on this process. So, um, hopefully I made him proud, uh, but yeah, that's what I have going on. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, there is no, I don't, I don't know that we're offending mass producing maple syrup makers, uh, across the car, just syrup makers across the country, but there is no comparison to fresh maple syrup. And locally we've had the benefit of being able to get it from uh, Kinner farms here in Western Pennsylvania. It's outstanding. Love it. And so you decided to give it a try and, and and not only 
cool project, right? Something for you to work on. And it's been fun. You've been sending me little videos along the way of the boiling process. And we talked about that. Um, but to be able to do it right off the bat and do it well, like you said, you did have some help, but uh, you got to have some real satisfaction as you're taking those first few bites. It, it, I did. I did. I mean, it, it seems like everybody that has tried it, my coworkers here have tried it. The, the gentleman that I bought my products from, I took it down and he graded it for me. And he was very impressed about the color and the clarity that I had. He didn't try anything for flavor because we just kept it bottled, but, um, it seems like a blind squirrel has found a nut. All right. Well, looking forward to giving it a try. Maybe I'll have to have a report ready for the next uh, episode, but I'm sure it'll be outstanding. The doctor is very detail-oriented meticulous. So uh, like I know he did a deer mount for me several years ago, which is the best mount of all the mounts I have. And I'm sure this will probably be the best syrup, of, maple syrup I've ever had as well. So I'm uh, looking forward to giving it a try. All right, Mike, let's go ahead and get into the interview. Let's bring in Shane Matzenbacher to talk deer, or excuse me, wildlife cooperatives. Shane, good to see you. Glad we could finally get you on the show. This is one we've actually had this requested by listeners. They said, hey, I want to learn more about co-ops. And so the doctor and I had kept saying, oh, we got to get Shane on the show so he can talk about co-ops. We finally got you on here despite you dancing around tornadoes and everything else in your neck of the woods. It's that time of year. Uh, but Shane is the deer outreach specialist for the National Deer Association. He's also a very passionate hunter. And just a lot of fun to be around. Shane and I have had a chance to do a couple field to forks together, among other things. So, Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. And you please tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me on here. And uh, it's a pleasure. I uh, enjoy talking to people about deer. And uh, that's uh, that's kind of what got me into this whole thing. Uh, but a little bit about me is uh live down here in uh, southwest Missouri. Uh, right on the Arkansas-Missouri line, uh, just south of Branson, Missouri. So most people come here for vacation, and uh, I try to go somewhere else for vacation. But uh, when you live here, it's a little bit different. But I uh, really, uh, really enjoy uh, the job. Uh, kind of came here. I worked for uh, Missouri State Parks for a decade and uh, love sharing uh, outdoor education with people and teaching people about nature and their surroundings. And uh, kind of one of my Strong suits was uh, was with wildlife. That's my background. Wildlife biology is what my degree's in uh, from Arkansas Tech University, and uh, it it just kind of snowballed from there. Getting to talk to people about uh, critters that that were in the area, and and deer was one of my things that I shared a passion with uh, my dad. Uh, he's had me in the deer stand since I was three years old, and uh, now I've got a seven year old daughter, and and getting her out there in the woods too. So. Uh, that's kind of just what got me going. But uh, 2019 is when I started uh, back in the QDMA days and uh, got to see the the merger and, and everything and, and new CEO. And it's just been really great since then, uh, working with all the landowners and uh, seeing the, the new staff take place and, and seeing some growth and change. And, and I say for the better. 
I didn't pay Shane to say that, by the way. I mean, I guess technically we pay you to say that, but no, <laughs> it's uh, it's good to hear. So yeah, that's right. You were you were with uh, QDMA before the merger. That's right. You were one of the folks that came over. And uh, let's get back to you were talking a little bit about hunting and being in a deer blind by the by the time you were three. So is that what fueled not only your passion for hunting, but also whenever it came time to decide if you were going to go on to school, is that what fueled your decision to go on to wildlife biology? I mean, it didn't hurt for sure. Uh, I, I just feel like, yeah, I've been out in the woods my whole life and uh, just really enjoyed being out there. But more than that, I love sharing it with other people. Um, and that's that's really what fueled it was. Uh, I'm interested in it. I, I love science. I, I love the natural sciences and uh, getting to share that knowledge with people um, and, and see that light bulb moment come up in, in their head or what we could call in the interpretation world the aha moment uh when you see everything light up in their eyes and and they get it uh so people always ask well well, what do you interpret and i always just said nature uh it's not what not not what language are you interpreting it's uh it's you know it's interpreting nature and putting it into layman's terms so everybody can understand what's going on around them but getting out there and hunting uh at an early age and uh, sharing that with my dad, uh, we still share that to this day. Uh, I think that's really what sparked it and uh, just got, got that love and it just grew from there. Um, and then, you know, dad encouraging me all through the years. I mean, every time I would have a hunting success, you know, he was there and, and encouraging me along the way. And uh, just, I enjoyed making my dad proud of what he taught me. And now I get to pass that on to other people and not just my kid, but to other people as well. And uh, get to share that encouragement with them and hopefully get them interested in the things that I hold dear to me. A couple questions along those lines. The first one is um, any highlights from your season last year that you want to mention? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had a, <laughs> I mean, it was it was hard to get out there and, and get some seat time in, in the tree stand, but uh, I did manage to get out there uh, early bow season, um, which was I always want to try to get out there. And a goal of mine, just an unwritten rule, is man, I would love to kill a deer on my birthday. Make it a, a birthday present to myself is to kill a deer on my birthday, and uh, I've done it a couple of times now. And uh, this year I did. I actually got to to kill a deer on my birthday with my bow, and uh, on some family land. So it just made it even better and just sweetened the pot. And uh, it was uh, it was one of those I, I'd been letting some bucks go, and you know, just quality deer management, letting the younger bucks go, and and uh, taking my right number of does and and that's what i've been managing on that property for years and uh starting to see my buck to doe ratio get right and uh but i knew that i had too many deer in the three and a half old age class um and i said you know what i'm, I'm gonna take one and i'm probably gonna uh, bring somebody else out here to to try to harvest another one of those three and a half year old bucks and they were pretty regular on trail camera and uh man just it, it's like you wrote a script and uh that morning on my birthday here come two nice uh, three-year-old bucks uh, walking in i didn't even see the second one till later uh, but the first one came right in just like he was on a string came in broadside 15 yards and uh, shot him 
and uh the first time that i'd ever had a deer actually drop uh right where i shot him when i was using archery uh, i've done that with a gun before but archery usually you know they'll run a little ways but this deer didn't go anywhere uh, he dropped right there a uh, great shot and uh, greatest easiest blood trail i've ever had to, had to try to follow <laughs> uh, but uh you know, it was, it was great to get to do that, but what really made it better was after the fact, uh, I did a European mount on that deer. And, uh, when I was cleaning the skull, I found out that the deer had upper canine teeth. And, uh, so found out, you know, got to look into that a little bit more, you know, less than 1% of whitetails have upper canine teeth. And, uh, we had an article about that years ago and, uh, I, I was like, man, I've never actually held one and I've seen pictures and stuff and read about it, but never actually seen that. And all the deer I've killed in my, in my life. And here I'm holding one on my birthday from family land. And I was like, man, this just can't get any better. Uh, we started skinning the deer and, uh, I found something kind of lodged in underneath the skin uh, of that deer. And I was like, dad, what is this? And I was like, I'm not sure what that, I thought it was poop. It looked like just a brown, <laughs> brown ball. Of it. I was like, oh, maybe I got, maybe I got a little pellet on there or something. And that's like, no, nah, it's too hard for that. I handed it to him and he goes, oh no, that's a 22 bullet. Well, apparently this deer had been shot by somebody a year or two ago and uh, they shot it with a 22 in the shoulder and uh, there was no wound or anything, but there was a bullet between the skin and the, and the meat of the deer. So it was just ended up being the gift that kept on giving uh, for my birthday. So that was a pretty awesome highlight of my hunting. I'd say that that was definitely the, the highlight of last year, uh, being able to do that. Kill I killed one deer in Arkansas and one in Missouri. So uh, that was that was another highlight. Yeah, it's pretty hard to beat that story. Jeez. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, the canine teeth alone, you get the deer on your birthday, and that alone is just such a rarity. Uh, so yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. And I didn't have this on the list of questions, but it, it, it came to my mind while you were talking there. You had a chance at one of the field to fork events to take out some elderly folks from a personal care home. So just a real quick, uh, couple minutes on that. That had to be a unique experience. Oh, and that's, uh, that's been so rewarding in, in every way. I mean, I love sharing, like I said earlier, I love sharing the outdoors with people and, and, I love hunting, but uh, this was a little different. And, you know, we, we talk about, and I'm sure you, you guys have talked about it before, uh, the R3 effort or recruit, retain, reactivate uh, new hunters and, and former hunters. And uh, usually we kind of focus on that recruiting new hunters and retaining the hunters that we have, but there's not a whole lot put into that third R of reactivating. And uh, we got a chance to work uh with uh, Baptist Homes Healthcare Ministries um, here in the state of Missouri. And uh, that all started because of uh, a co-op. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, one of our co-op members just happens to be the president of Baptist Homes and Healthcare. And so uh, he got in touch with us and said, hey, I'm, I'm a huge, huge supporter of NDA. I'm a member and I really love this field to fork thing that you guys have going on. Uh, would you guys be interested in doing that for uh, some of our, our senior homes? I'm like, you know, we hadn't thought about it, uh, but it was definitely rewarding getting to take uh, some folks out that maybe used to hunt, 
uh, haven't been able to hunt in a while. Uh, we've had some that uh, had health issues and, and so they weren't able to hunt. Uh, but these, uh, these different places, they have different campuses across the state, and we were able to take them out on their campus where they live and uh, try to harvest some deer. Uh, we were using crossbows. Uh, so it, that was a, another level of, of fun, trying to teach folks how to use a crossbow that never shot a crossbow before, and then to take them out there where they live on their campus and uh, harvest the deer. You know what? It, it didn't matter if we harvested a deer or not because they were just so excited about being out there and uh, being back out in the woods and getting to experience the blind and, and the hunting, whole hunting experience. Uh, but I, I got the privilege of taking a gentleman that was 91 years old. And uh, it had been decades since he had got to hunt. Uh, never shot a crossbow. And uh, funny story there was he he started shooting, and uh, and he was he was just a dead shot. And we were like, man, I don't have to tell you anything. You're just just nailing it. And then he he reminded me that he's blind in his right eye, so he switched and started shooting left-handed. And uh, he shot even better left hand. <laughs> and uh, he had never done that before, but he goes, yeah, I'm legally blind in my right eye. And so nobody could touch him uh, as far as shooting goes, but uh, it, it was just a, a night and day difference from when I got there. He was kind of a little bit down in the dumps about things and had a lot going on in his life and getting up there in years and just wondering why he was still alive actually. And uh, then I don't know how it happened, but with a deer hunt, totally changed his outlook and uh, perked his spirits back up uh, to the point where his son was calling uh, the center there and, and said, what have you done with my dad? And uh, they're like, oh, we're so sorry. We didn't mean to, you know, and he goes, no, no, no. You brought my dad back. He said, he's been so down in the dumps and, and everything for so long that uh, we thought we had lost him, and now we have our dad back. And uh, he's back to his old self and just in high spirits. And he said, in all of this, he keeps talking about a deer hunt. What is this all about? And so we told his son all about the deer hunt, and now I think this next season uh, we're probably going to take his uh, his son out on one of the deer hunts because his son's in his upper 60s. So wow, yeah. uh, it'll be another season senior deer hunt and going from generation to generation and uh it's just been so rewarding in every aspect i just uh definitely one of the highlights of, of my deer hunting career to be able to to share that uh share the blind with so many great people and we did three or four of those last year and look like we're going to do that many again this year in missouri uh, what an awesome, awesome story and man we could spend the whole show talking about stories like that i think we should do that at some point we're going to switch gears a little bit, though, and we're going to talk about wildlife cooperatives. And we're especially lucky here because the doctor is part of one of those where he is in New York. I'm certainly familiar with them, but in my younger years, was never able to get enough neighbors together to do anything on the same page. Uh, and so, Shane, this is your job. It's your job to go out and help people build wildlife cooperatives. So what the heck is a wildlife cooperative? I mean, simply put, it's neighbors helping neighbors. Um, it's really just getting your neighbors together to manage your local deer herd. Um, you know, we have branches and, you know, you've, uh, some of the other organizations have chapters that are more regionally uh, kind of the whole area. But 
cooperatives are on a, on a smaller, more local scale. Uh, and it's actually your collective properties all working together. Uh, don't always have to be contiguous, but most of the time they are contiguous, which that means they, they touch each other on, my, on the boundaries of the properties. Um, and the biggest thing there is a deer's home range is, is going to vary. And so it's, the deer's not probably not going to stay on one particular property. And we've actually had some studies where it showed deer on multiple properties, like 20 or 30 properties uh, in their home range. And so when you're talking about smaller parcels of land like that, if all of those neighbors get together and work together for the same deer management goals, uh, then they can properly manage a deer herd and actually make a difference on the landscape with that herd collectively. Uh, because not everybody you know, has the luxury of owning 5,000 acres where you could manage a whole deer herd. Usually you have a lot smaller acreage than that, and uh, that's what cooperatives are all about, is getting everybody on the same page in an area to, to manage that local deer herd. Well, Mike, your, your uh, breakdown from a cooperative, uh, being a, a member of a cooperative, what are your thoughts? What has your experience been with that? And we'll get into more details about how to get one started, but I think that'd be a good follow-up to what Shane just said there. Well, for me, it was very helpful because I was a distance landowner and it gave me a sense of connectivity with other local like-minded individuals. And I will have to say that our co-op leader, and I'll give him a shout out, his name was John Hammer. He has since um, retired from that position, but he's written several articles for Quality Whitetails and um you know, he does very active sent in, in uh, images for the age, this buck. Uh, so you might've seen some of his work there, but he was very dedicated to the the concept of QDM. And he was a, a very good communicator and he had a really unique way to be able to connect with people and get them to see the big picture. And at one point um, we were somewhere around like 4,700 acres, 4, 000, between 4,100 and 4,700 acres, which is a lot in New York, considering that most people own smaller chunks. And we were non-contiguous, but we did command a large enough area to where even the state biologists and the state agencies were looking at some of the data that we had in regards to ages of bucks harvested, how many bucks we saw in stand. So our annual report, we would actually fill out observation logs and John would tabulate all of that and the state utilized that as actual good quality observation data to at least help them with some of their management thought processes. I'm not sure any policies changed because of us, but um, it was a very, very active uh, cooperative and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. Yep. I mean, that's a, a great story. It's just, like I said, it's nice having you here, Mike, to talk about your own personal experience with it. And you and I have talked about it offline as well. And you're always talking about the, the data and just even the camaraderie that comes with it. So Shane, I'm going to throw this back to you here now, then let's say I come to you and I, and I ask you, I say, you know what, I've been reading about these co-ops and I have a little piece of land and all my neighbors have little pieces of land. And we just sort of talk loosely about what we're doing. Where do we start? How do we start a co-op? Walk us through the process. I mean, uh, 
you pretty much already started the process by knowing, hey, my my neighbors here, they might be interested in in deer management as well. Um, and it doesn't have to just be deer management. It can be wildlife management. It can be habitat management. Um, we just say they're landowner cooperatives anymore. Um, so that way it involves more of the landowners and touches a broader base. Uh, somebody might not be a hunter, but you want to definitely involve them in the management process. Uh, so they might be okay with you hunting, but you also want to utilize their property as well as far as the goals of the entire co-op. So a lot of times we'll call them a wildlife co-op or a habitat co-op or just a, just a landowner cooperative. Uh, so that way they can all be involved. Uh, but first things first is you got to see if there's even any interest uh, in your neighboring landowners. Uh, and the one thing to keep in mind here is you can define a cooperative as two or more landowners working together for deer management goals. So if it's just you and your next door neighbor and you guys have a pretty good chunk of land between you two, then okay, then you're going to make a difference. It can be two or more, but that's where you, you kind of have to say, all right, there's a gray area there because do you really have enough property together, just the two of you to, to make a difference on, on the landscape? Uh, that's what it is. It's a landscape management approach. And so you want to make sure you get enough landowners together to start making a difference on the, ha in, on the landscape. So you start asking around, meeting your neighbors and seeing if they have any interest at all in deer, wildlife, habitat management, any of that. Once you start getting kind of a core group, um, that's usually where I say, all right, well, let's get an interest group meeting and just invite all your neighbors. And, and a good way to do that is to have a cookout. Uh, I don't know. We always said uh, and laugh about it as feed them and they will come. Uh, but you, you put a, put some hamburgers out on the grill and, and invite everybody over for a cookout. Uh, even if they don't care what you're saying, at least they got a good meal out of the deal. <laughs> so uh, they feel like they're getting something, but uh, invite everybody over for a, uh, for a cookout and uh, talk a little bit about deer and hunting and, and what your, what the goals are or what you're trying to accomplish. Um, that's always good to just kind of gauge interest to see who, who wants to do it, who's in, who's out. And uh, a lot of times you can take an area map and that usually helps uh, to see where everybody's at uh, a little flat map and see who's got what parcel of land so that you can kind of see how the, how that everything lays there. Uh, see who has what resources on their property. That's another good part of it. But the first, first things first, see what the interest is in the area. Go talk to your neighbors. Uh, that's something that we don't do a whole lot in this day and age, and we probably should do more of, uh, is going out there and, and touching base with your neighbors. Uh, get to know them, see what their interests are, and a lot of times you find out you'll have something that, that you connect on at some level that, that you guys both have an interest in. Um, the other thing that, that I love about that is everybody always is in the mindset, well, if I pass this deer, and going back to quality deer management, like Mike was talking about, if I pass this deer, um, then the guy across the fence is just going to shoot it. And, you know, I think it, you know, if it's brown, it's down. That's their whole goal is so we don't, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to pass anything because the neighbor will just shoot it. Well, I always encourage people, have you even talked to your neighbor? 
if you haven't talked to your neighbor, I bet you'll be surprised at what they say because they're probably going to say the same thing about you and think you're the one that's shooting everything. So uh, once you actually get together and start meeting your neighbors and start talking to them about that and your deer management goals and kind of how you operate in QDM, you find out a lot really quick. And usually you're on the same page already uh, from, from my experience is finding out that they want to help out wildlife. They want to have healthier deer herds. They want to have better habitat. Um, and we're, we're hunters and everybody likes to shoot big bucks. So that's another part of it is, hey, we want to we want to shoot bigger bucks. So uh, how do we do that? And so then you talk about quality deer management and taking the adequate amount of does and letting those younger back younger bucks go. That's usually the minimum requirements of the co-op agreement and uh, go from there. But get that core group of, of landowners and neighbors interested. And then we can take the next step. So I'm going to jump in there and just um, run off of Shane's coattails because I actually, while he was talking, I pulled up my, my reports that I get uh, from our co-op and your statement of how people believe that if I don't shoot this buck, that's a potential up and comer, somebody else will. And one of the data points that we have is quality bucks observed and we have it by year. And so just looking at these numbers, um, I'll just give you the, I quickly pulled up 2018, but, um, in 2017, our co-op members observed on the stand 242 quality bucks, which was to our minimum standard of, you know, at, at an antler spread at the tips of the ears or greater. And so it's 242 in 2017. And then in two, uh, 2018, we had 260. And, and I know going back from uh, 2016, that number just continues to rise. So if you have the right-minded people in a group, as Shane said, commanding enough area, we were seeing these things where if you do put in the time and follow, and I don't want to, I hate to call them rules, but at least the the beliefs of the group that the the data shows that your hunting gets better and, and mine did. I mean, I could bore you with all of my numbers, but I just thought talking about the quality bucks observed by hunters on stand and seeing a jump of, because our membership didn't change, but seeing a, a jump of nearly 20 bucks in a year might not seem like much, but when you think about it, that actually is a pretty significant number, especially in a state like New York. Yeah, and it's not, uh, it, it's not going to happen overnight. And once you get everybody realizing that, you know, you're not going to see results right away, usually we're talking three to five years. Uh, and that just goes along with, you know, antler potential for, for bucks is usually five and a half to six and a half years old. So it's going to take a little bit for them to reach their potential if you are following what we call guidelines. Like you said, you don't want to call them rules, but here's some guidelines to try to get us there. No, we're not going to be perfect on it, but we're going to strive if everybody or the majority of everybody in the co-op is striving for the same guidelines and goals, then you're going to see a difference in a couple of years. Uh, you're going to see more quality bucks in, in two or three years. Yeah, and we're focused here. Largely, we've talked mostly about bucks, and that's a lot of the reason why people do co-ops. But you could do them for a whole, a whole bunch of other reasons as well or add reasons to it. So maybe your first goal is we want to have we want to have an older age class deer to shoot at. That's great. But then maybe you also all share rough grouse habitat and you want to make sure that's as contiguous as possible. Or maybe it's an antlerless 
uh, situation where you're, you're, you realize that you've got too many deer and you want to try to control the antlerless situation. Maybe it's something to do with chronic wasting disease and trying to maintain populations at a certain level. So there are a lot of different ways and reasons uh, why you might want to do a co-op, but you know, obviously the bucks are the headliners. Shane, I want to go back to uh, a comment about, you said maybe have a cookout, get your neighbors over, that kind of thing. Uh, you wrote a cool article a couple years ago now entitled five ways to meet your deer hunting neighbors, five easy ways to meet your deer hunting neighbors. Anything else that you want to point out from that article as uh, is, is a good way to get your neighbors to talk to you about this, which can be a really sensitive subject, by the way, deer pit, uh, people take their deer hunting pretty seriously in most parts of the country. You know, I think, uh, I think the number one thing I said in that article is to be visible. Um, if you're not out there, they can't see you, they can't meet you, uh, kind of goes for them as well. If your neighbors are never outside to where you can ever meet them, uh, in this day and age, most people won't answer the door if you go up and knock on it. Uh, so if you're not out there, maybe you're doing yard work or maybe you're out there on the on the property where you're, you're hunting. Uh, maybe you're out there on the tractor or uh, putting in a food plot or, or doing some some prescribed fire, you know, something like that. Uh, get those neighbors involved. But the biggest thing is be visible uh, because I've met most of my neighbors, if not all of them, by being out outside in the yard and uh doing some you know work around the house or if i'm out on my hunting property they'll see me out there and when they're driving by they'll they'll stop and say hey and then you can just start a conversation from there and be like hey we we just bought this property or hey this is where where i'm hunting at or uh you, you can start the conversation a lot of different ways but uh when you haven't met your neighbors you can start those conversations but the biggest thing is you got to be visible uh, so that they can stop and, and meet you. And so that, that way, maybe you can flag them down and say, hey, we just came in over here. Or we just bought the property up the way and I was just going around trying to meet our neighbors and uh, let you guys know we're here. And uh, hey, if you guys want to you know, get together, we're going to have a, a block party or something like that and have a cookout and invite everybody over. Um, I've even had some success. Uh, here around the Branson area where they got together, everybody got together and said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do a prescribed fire. Uh, we, of course it's, we can do that here and, and it's not legal like that everywhere, but we were able to, uh, have a prescribed fire day and, uh, it was a little five acre burn, but we had like 35 people out there on a five acre burn, which is way more than we needed. But, uh, we got to meet a lot of new people and neighbors that didn't know they were neighbors right next door. Uh, they had never met before, and here they are helping out on some habitat improvement. Uh, but it was the same thing, being visible. Uh, they've got to be visible. You've got to be visible. And don't be afraid to, to talk to people. Uh, that's the other part. Hello, friends. Nick Penizzato here, and I want to tell you about our friends at Moultrie Mobile, who are longtime NDA supporters. Specifically, I want to talk about the Edge Cellular Trail Camera. Now, this new Auto Connect technology works on multiple major U.S. networks, so it's going to automatically connect to the best signal in your area. It also has built-in memory, so you don't have to mess with SD cards. And for me, that's a big deal because mine always end up in the wash, and that never turns out well. 
They also have improved battery life and also improved image quality. So we're talking 33 megapixel quality images and 720p HD video, and that's day or night. I'm about to go out and put a couple out for uh, scouting for turkey season. I also use them for surveillance, and I can't say enough good things about the quality of the cameras by our friends at Moultrie Mobile. Be sure to check them out at MoultrieMobile.com. The doctor, I think, already shared with us a success story. I think his co-op's been successful. Uh, but do you have, Shane, a story that stands out to you that is would be sort of your shining example of success when putting together co-ops? As far as putting together a co-op or one that's operating well? How, however you want to, wherever direction those, you want to go. Those are two different, yeah. Yeah. Those are two different stories. I mean, I, I've got some co-ops here in Missouri, which we've got. Uh, I cover the southern half of the state and uh, got about a dozen or so co-ops here in the southern half of Missouri uh, that are operating well. Um, but there's one that, that really stands out because of uh, how they operate. Um, and the biggest part of, of any any kind of group like that is communication. I think we've kind of hit on that a lot is don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to meet people, but uh, stay in communication. And uh, I guess I'd go the opposite direction and say, if you don't stay in communication, then it's, it's doomed to fail. Uh, Cause I've actually had some of that unfortunately happen in some of the co-ops uh, that were established before I got here. Uh, they kind of went on hiatus because they stopped talking to each other. Um, course the pandemic didn't really help things in that on that end as everybody stopped talking to each other and stopped, you know meeting face to face so that made that was another hurdle but uh, now things are starting to get back to where people want to get out and, and meet but um, I, I do have one co-op over there that it kind of a success story there is they kind of set everything up I, I should say like a model co-op should they have their officers um, they have a bank account. They have nonprofit status. Um, they hold at least two meetings a year, if not more. Uh, we usually say a preseason meeting so you can set your goals, a postseason meeting to see if you met your goals. Um, they have a lot of fun things that they do in between uh, sometimes, and they do raffles and things like that so that they, they can raise money. Uh, but they've got it pretty well down to a science now. They do a gun raffle every year. Uh, they raise enough money uh, to really raise money for the co-op to do whatever they want to. Uh, but because they did everything, you know, I should not want to say the way they should, but uh, they did everything by the book and, and have their structure set in place and have their nonprofit status. They, uh, they were able to get some uh, cost share funding. Uh, and that's a great thing about setting up your, your cooperative as an actual a nonprofit entity or even going as far as a 501c, uh, you can, you're eligible to receive grants and funding that way, whether it's state or federal funding. Um, really cool thing here in Missouri is we have equipment cost sharing through the state. And so that co-op uh, is a pretty large one. Uh, they have almost 12,000 acres in that co-op, uh, over 50 landowners. And they were tired of trying to get a hold of the county grain drill. And uh, they said it, it was kind of beat up and it, it was never available when they wanted it. Of course, they're in an area where they have a lot of agriculture anyway. So 
all the farmers are trying to use the county grain drill and they're like, we just want it for food plots and on our own hunting properties. And it's never available, uh, especially during planting season when we need to plant. Hmm. So uh, they got together and with their, their structure, they were able to uh, purchase a, a brand new $12,000 grain drill. And uh, they got half of it paid for through the equipment cost share program. And the other half they had to come up with. Well, they did one gun raffle a year. They had five years to pay it off. I think they paid it off in three. And uh, there's just a couple of gun raffles. And then they had excess money from their gun raffle. So they said, you know what? We want wheel weights for it because of the ground here. We need it to be a little heavier. And so they bought wheel weights for the grain drill. And so now the only people that are allowed to use that grain drill are members of the co-op. That's a benefit. And it's always available when they need it. And a lot of times there'll be somebody else in the co-op that says, hey, I'm using the drill. You want me to come and drill yours right after I get done with mine? Uh, so this neighbor's helping neighbors. And, hey, I've already got it hooked up to the tractor. I'll just come over to your place and help you plant yours or whatever. Uh, I, I think that's that's one of the big, biggest success stories that, that I've seen uh, while I've been here. And uh, seeing neighbors helping neighbors. And buy something that everyone gets to use. It's a benefit for just the co-op members. Uh, that, that's been one of the biggest. As far as forming a co-op, that's been tough. Um, I, I always joke about I don't know what a normal day of work or a normal year of work is supposed to look like because I started right before the pandemic and then I was in the middle of it. And so now we're on the tail end after and Every, it's been different every year. Uh, so uh, to know what a, what a normal is supposed to be, I'm not real sure what that is, but I started a couple of co-ops and uh, to see them grow from small acreage, and I say small, uh, they had 700 acres to start with, and, and now they're getting up there 1,500 to 2,000 acres, and they're bringing in more neighbors, and uh, neighbors are starting to see stuff and that's going on, and, and they're, they're seeing the results of the fruits of their labor, essentially. And uh, that, that word of mouth amongst neighbors, hey, have you seen what, what these guys are doing over here on this place? How, how do we get involved? And so they're starting to ask questions because they're seeing the results. Uh, I think that's probably one of the biggest formation successes is seeing that the landowners get excited about it and sharing all of that uh, and then see it grow from there. Um, one, one last story, if I can, if I can share that, if i got time here. Uh, as far as the hunting goes, uh, one of the, the best that I've experiences that I've seen was there was a, a very, very large uh, buck that he everybody had seen him. Everybody knew the deer. Um, the whole co-op was after this deer. Uh, and he was getting up there in age. And I think he ended up, uh, somebody they finally harvested him. I think he ended up aging at eight and a half years old. Uh, so very, very old, mature buck, but everybody was after him. And uh, it ended up a, one of the, the co-op members, kids killed him during youth season. Hmm. And kid, uh, I mean, he was on cloud nine. He had just killed a giant deer and uh, couldn't be happier, but Everybody in the entire co-op was so happy about that deer finally coming down after 
getting so old and so many people had opportunities, missed opportunities. Uh, I think the deer had even been shot before by somebody and they didn't recover him and he survived. And this, it had such a great history with everyone in the co-op and they had all had pictures of this deer growing up and, uh, and everyone shared in that deer's story. And I think that's, that's kind of one of the bigger successes as far as co-ops is when it's not my deer, it's not your deer or, Hey, you can't do that. Everyone shared in that, that buck, uh, everyone shared in what they had to do to improve their habitat, to grow that deer and to let him get to that age and let him to get to that antler size and a great healthy deer. Uh, and, everyone was just as happy as the kid that killed the deer uh, in in that deer being harvested finally in their co-op, on their co-op grounds. Uh, Everybody was excited. I think that that camaraderie and and that sharing amongst all the members of the group was uh, one of the biggest success stories that that I could tell as well. Well, that's a lot of success there overall. And so, yeah, you've shared all the aspects of success you can have, which is great. All right, I'm going to lead you home with this, Shane. We have a position open at NDA, and you mentioned that you're covering southern Missouri, and we need somebody to do northern Missouri. So sell your job. Uh, Why should somebody be interested? We don't have opportunities that come open all the time here at NDA. Uh, Your quick uh, one-minute pitch to somebody about why they should be interested in this position. Man, you'd have to – one minute's not long enough. you got to pinch me whenever I say that I'm working for the National Deer Association. I mean, this has been something that uh, it, it was a dream of mine back in college, and I never thought I'd be able to work for this organization. Uh, and, and a job opening just like this came open, and I was able to, to get the job. Couldn't be happier. Uh, I love getting to see the state. Uh, I've gotten to see parts of, of the states that I've never seen before, uh, getting to share. Uh, deer stories and management stories, uh, getting to help with habitat management, uh, getting to educate people about deer. Um, the field, the forks, like I said, we had the senior hunt. We've also done some, some new adult hunters. Um, we help with chronic wasting disease sampling. I, I guess that's just the deer nerd in me. I like all the gross stuff, but uh, pulling the lymph nodes and getting those tested and seeing all the cool stuff. I mean, we had deer that had overcome EHD and we had uh, fly larva in the throat and all this kind of stuff. I mean, stuff that would gross most people out, but I loved it. Uh, I like the deer science stuff and the biology part. I mean, that's why I went to school for it, but this job, it's never the same. Every day is different. Um, I, I do like the flexibility of it uh, because it's not a nine to fiver. It's, it's not the same every day. Uh, you get to meet so many great people and so many great landowners across the state. Um, I, I don't know. These opportunities don't come come open very often. So my advice is, hey, there's one available. You should get your name in there uh, because uh, you'll be you'll be glad you did. And I know uh, the employee that's leaving is not happy about leaving. Uh, it's actually pretty sad because you really really love the position and really love the job. It's just things that uh, she got to take over her family business and a little sooner than she was expecting. Um, but that was, uh, that was her end goal. It just wasn't uh, 
if he didn't know that it was going to happen this soon. Uh, otherwise, I don't think she'd be leaving us for, for very long. She'd be here quite a while. So uh, these opportunities don't come up very often. So if you get a chance, take advantage of it, and you won't be sorry getting to meet all the new people here in the state. All right. Well, thanks for that, Shane. And by the way, you can learn more about that position on our careers page. I think you go to the about section of our website and you'll have to see the job description there. So if you're interested, throw your hat in the ring. You will have to live in uh, Missouri to do the job. You could move there. You don't have to live there now necessarily. Uh, so be aware of that. And also, if you want to learn more about NDA wildlife cooperatives, you can just go to deerassociation.com slash co-op. That's slash C-O-O-P. And you can learn a lot more about the things that we talked about here today. So Shane, uh, oh, I, I want to say this too. If you want to ask Shane questions directly, it's Shane at DeerAssociation.com. It's C-H-E-Y-N-E at DeerAssociation.com. And he'll be ha happy to answer any questions you have. So Shane, thank you very much for taking the time out to be with us here today. And uh, always good to see you and catch up. Yep. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, like I said, if anybody has any questions about deer or co-ops or you just want to tell some hunting stories, shoot me, shoot me a call or text or email or passenger pigeon or whatever you can find. <laughs> now you've just opened a big can of worms, but uh, all right, Shane, thanks again. And we'll see you soon. I got to say it was fun to have a show that was requested by our listeners. And so hopefully we can do more of that. And I think we got, a uh, little extra bonus here because of your own personal experience with co-ops. You and I have talked quite a bit about that over the years. And then to have Shane, a professional on the ground out there making co-ops happen. And really, I, there was so much good about that interview that I enjoyed, but I particularly liked, as it refers to co-ops, the stories of the success. And he initially made it seem like he didn't have many success stories, but then he rattled off three really cool things. So I don't know. That was that was my favorite part. Well, and there was a lot of high points for me as well. But to be able to actually provide some insight because co-ops and I don't want to kind of put an umbrella over the entire word co-op. But to me, they were slightly mysterious because until you're involved in one or have someone that is associated with one, you don't know much about it. And it was really unique on how I got involved in mine and sometime when we have a lot of time i'll tell that story because it was very convoluted but very happy to be part of it you know you have a certain sense of some pride and some ownership and camaraderie that extends well beyond the hunting season and there's also some reward with that when you i'm a, I'm a numbers geek i'm a nerd that way and when we get our reports from our observations and from the entire co-ops um, harvest data and observation data is it's really nice to mill over those numbers and kind of compare yourself to how everybody else is doing and motivate you to even do better on your habitat work or your projects, things like that. So there, there's a lot of pluses to it. And uh, I would encourage everybody to at least listen to what Shane said, because the the communication part and getting that connectivity with your neighbors is, is the the big first step. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, again, a lot of great information there. Uh, we gave you the website to learn more. It's deerassociation.com slash co-op. And there's a lot of more information there as well. All right, Mike, it's time. It's time for the B-Team Report.
Looking at my notes, Mike, and by the way, we are approaching, we're getting closer and closer to our 50th episode, so we're going to have to do something special for that. But uh, hey, it's your turn to go first on the B-team report. Okay, well, because work has been busy for me and syrup making took up a lot of my time, and I didn't mess that up because, like you said, I that was a lot of focus and attention to detail. I don't have anything that I've done goofy in the past week, so I'm going to have to go retro again, and I'm bringing out probably one of my greatest b-team stories so this was <laughs> i know i mean I, I really tee that up up correctly but this was uh several decades ago i was in my late 20s and i was going to muzzleloader hunt out of state i was driving from pennsylvania into new york so i left at three o'clock in the morning drove four hours got to where i was going to muzzleloader hunt which is a very isolated area it's the middle of december and I'm driving down this no winter maintenance road and there's five inches of fresh snow on the ground and I'm breaking, I'm blazing the trail. There's no tracks in front of me. So no one's on this road. I get parked. I, we have to wait until eight o'clock until we can actually start in the first day of muzzleloader. And I'm getting all my things ready, getting myself organized, kind of coming up with my plan. I go to the back at the time I was driving an SUV and I pack my bag, put my lunch in there, my water. Um, and I have my pack ready to go. And so the last thing I do is I pull out my muzzle loader and I begin to load it. <laughs> and so I put the <laughs> I put the powder in, I put the bullet in, and then I start rooting through my pack looking for my 209 shot shell primers. And I look some more, and I look some more, and I look some more. And then I realize I don't have them. I must have forgotten them at home for some odd, strange reason. <laughs> and so now I am very, very mad. Well, the one thing that I do when I'm mad is I start moving a thousand miles an hour in a direction that's going to get me back to where I need to be. So I needed to figure out where I could go and buy 209 shot shell primers on a Saturday morning at, um, you know, eight ten in the morning. And so I'm hurryingly trying to get all this stuff put back in the truck so that I can go and try and buy some shot shell primers. I slam the back of the the truck, but I actually locked it before I walked around oh, from the driver's no. side. And what I did and what I always do is I always put my keys in my pack, which is now in the back oh, of the SUV. No. So now I've locked myself out on this low maintenance, low winter access. And it's not a through road. It's You have to be driving in there to hunt. And it's tens of thousands of acres. It's a huge chunk of ground up here. And so now I'm, I'm actually literally stuck and I don't have my cell phone cause it's in my pack. I don't have my keys cause it's in my pack and I am miles down this road and I'm coming up with a plan. Like how can I break into this vehicle as minimally invasive as possible? Cause it's 20 some odd degrees outside. I don't want to drive four hours home with a window broken. And as I'm coming up with that thought process, I hear a vehicle coming down the road and here uh -huh. comes another muzzleloader hunter. I run out, I wave him down and long story short, um, he gets out, we use his ramrod with, he has a bullet puller, a screw in. So I get my fingers in the window, pull my window out. He gets his bullet puller in there and pops the latch to unlock the, the uh, SUV's door. So I get in. And he actually advises me, he did, he wasn't shooting two on shot shell primers, which, you know, I didn't double win on that capacity, but um, he tells me where I can go in town and buy some. So I drive in town, come back and never did kill anything that day. But um, 
I didn't get back to the woods and actually hunting until like 11 o'clock in the morning. So that's my B team story. That's a good one. And uh, you drove how many hours to go to have that kind of a day? <laughs> it was four hours going and I had to, and I, I wasn't staying over. So it was four hours coming home. So I was in the vehicle eight hours of just commuting there. Plus I had to waste another two and a half hours going to buy primers and then coming back to where I initially started at 730 in the morning. Well, I might have just needed to go find a bar instead of uh, <laughs> shot shell primers at that point. But uh, hey, I got to tell you that this is a bonus story because when you started telling a muzzleloader story, I have a B team story that popped into my mind. It's very similar to yours, not exactly. Uh, and it seems like with any kind of hunting implement, like you know, especially a muzzleloader, it requires like multiple things to go right multiple things tend to go wrong and there if you're a b teamer like us you probably just shouldn't be muzzleloader hunting but uh, anyway i got asked by a group of co-workers we were going to go uh, into this big area of state game lands it was late uh late antlerless season and we were trying to uh or late in the antlerless season we were trying to fill some doe tags and we were going to go do some you know back in the day we did pushes and these types of things and we got way back in there and it's already kind of rainy and uh not only not only did I not prepare for the rain, but I also realized that I did not have primers and nobody else had them. And so basically that made me a driver the entire time. Yeah. So yeah, basically had to walk the whole time. But anyway, I'll go a different direction here on my the story I meant to tell. And by the way, I'm gonna have plenty because I'm into this project trying to get this camp up and running. And anytime I'm into a project, I'm gonna be into problems. And I've already got some of those, but I'm gonna hold off because I'm sure I'll, I'll have some. But this is one traveling back from the uh i'm sorry no traveling to the north american conservation conference and so typically when i'm flying somewhere this was in st louis uh, typically when i'm flying somewhere i will be dressed like as if i'm going to you know ball practice or something i look like a like a college basketball coach because i'm wearing like sweatpants and a hoodie and trying to just be comfortable okay because flying you know, it's not great. And I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to wear nice clothes. But in this case, I was going to be arriving where I would arrive and walk right into a meeting. And so I had to go dressed appropriately. So of course, I had a 6am flight. So I didn't eat anything until I was making my connection uh, in, in uh, Detroit. And so I'm being real careful. And so I'm like, you know what, I can I need a cup of coffee. So I'm going to get a cup of coffee right before I get on the plane. And, uh, uh, you know, that way I get that taken care of get my jolt of caffeine and so you get the coffee and it's so stinking hot and i'm like but I, i'm not taking the lid off this thing because i know if i take the lid off this thing i'm going to burn myself or i'm going to spill it on myself or whatever so i'm not taking the lid off i'm just going to let it sit there for a second and, and suck it up but i'm not getting this coffee on me and so i go and i sit down in one of the seats in the airport and uh, I'm, I'm like well i'm gonna there's not anywhere really to set this coffee so i'm just going to set it on the floor beside me and so I do, I go and Mike, I'm telling you, even though I thought about it and I promised myself I wouldn't do this, as I set this thing on the floor, coffee then fires up out of the little hole in the top of the cup. Oh, yeah, and from my knee down to my shoe and all over my shoe, I've got spilled coffee. So you're saying yeah. it's almost like that impact where you <sighs> hit it from the, like ketchup, when you hit it from the bottom, it comes out the, the mouth. Is that what happened? Like it just... Sent the shockwave up through and out the drinking port. Hundred percent, hundred percent. What? Ha oh yeah, yeah. Like a like you know, like a super soaker. 
And so I will say, the, for I was at least lucky. I was wearing charcoal-colored pants. But had I been wearing like tan-colored or light-colored pants, you totally would have seen coffee stain on my pant leg. So, but I did have to get on the plane with a wet leg and hope nobody noticed. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was my B team report uh, from the last since since the last episode. So anyway, there you get a bonus B team report with muzzle loaders and also the spilling the coffee. Uh, just, you know, what a klutz, even though I told myself every time I tell myself, don't do it, <laughs> I end up doing it. So there you have it. All right, Mike. Hey, quick, uh, habitat and camp update for me. I did get some tree cutting in. I think you might've seen that on my Instagram. It was a little later than I wanted, but just sort of randomly going in and doing a little hinging and taking out some obvious trees, trying to open up some oak trees. So that was good. And, uh, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm getting ready to run power now to the camp building, which means I'm going to be running a trencher and digging that hole here over the weekend and maybe getting connected. So boy, there's there's a B team report waiting to happen because I have zero experience actually running a trencher. So how do you think that's going to go? I hope it goes well for you. I really do. Just just because anytime someone's running power equipment, I hope they come out at the end of the day safe. Uh, but you know, best of luck to you. And I'm sure that I'll be kept abreast of what how it goes. Well, yeah, thank you. And, you know, I'm looking at this thing. I'm, I've watched videos of this machine I'm about to rent, and it, it has three levers on it. Okay, so that's all I have to get straight are these three levers. And I feel like I can pull this off, but, uh, you know, anything's possible. And I got to run this trench, by the way, has to, it's going to be about 150 feet uh, long. So I've got my hands full that day, but I'm looking forward to doing that and actually getting power to the building. So, Anyway, we'll see what happens. And I don't know about you, Mike, but man, winter all of a sudden, it was winter yesterday and now it's 80. And so I feel yeah. like woefully behind already. How about you? No, I'm okay because we had we had a couple of breaks in the weather and I worked up until we started to get snow and freeze thaw and uh, the snow was actually a little bit too deep and I didn't like how I was feeling out there in regards to safety and my footing. So I, I laid off for about a month, but um uh, for the first time, not yet, not today, it was, or I'm sorry, it was the day before yesterday. So today's Wednesday, it was Monday. I actually heard uh, the little peepers and tree frogs up here, which is the first time considering that, you know, I still had a little bit of snow on the ground about four days before that. Yeah, it's been going on for about a couple of weeks here. We're a little bit ahead of you, but it's been fun to see uh, turkeys are out there strutting everywhere. Um, seeing a lot of that, I cut my grass yesterday for the first time, which, you know, not that I look forward to it, but that sort of is a signal of spring. And so just having the, the fresh cut grass is cool. But, uh, you know, even, even with baseballs, you know, coach baseball, it's, uh, nice going and playing on green fields now instead of muddy brown fields. So summer, summer's here. Uh, speaking of which you mentioned about your story being several decades ago, and we talk about how, uh, or we can tell stories now that are several decades old, which speaks a little bit to our age. And this was a good one yesterday. So we're, uh, we had a baseball game yesterday evening. And uh, as I'm standing there, one of the kids says to me, oh, he's like, I'm getting old, coach. And I just looked at him and I said, well, how old are you? He said, 15. I said, well, let me tell you something, buddy. I said, I've been 15 four times. And he just looked at me and I said, I said, let that sink in. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been 15 more than four times. And so I don't want to hear from some 15 year old kid how he's getting old at 15. But uh, hey, we are six and oh, by the way. So we're off to a very nice start. 
So yeah, you guys are killing it right now. Yeah, yeah, three comebacks in a row. So I'd rather not do that, but I've already lost all my hair, so it's not really that that big of a deal. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so anyway, my point is there's a lot going on. I haven't even been fishing yet. And the next thing you know, it's going to be July, but I'm glad to hear at least that you don't feel like you're behind, which is good. So you're ahead of the game. And I think living there has made a nice difference for you. So, all right, folks. Hey, just a few things I want to tell you about a lot of great things going on at NDA right now, as we head toward the close of the show, uh, some of them are secrets. So I can't tell you about them, but I can tell you there are cool things going on. We have three job openings right now, which is very rare. You heard about the one in the interview for the deer outreach specialists in Missouri. We also are hiring two full-time regional directors to help us with our grassroots program, work with our branches. And so one will be in the South and one will be in the Midwest. Please go to deerassociation.com, go to the about section and you'll see the career opportunities there. Again, it's not often that we have openings, and when we have three at one time, uh, it's a great opportunity. So check those out. Our newsletter comes out tomorrow as you're listening to this on a Wednesday. So if you aren't already signed up for our free e-newsletter, do it, and you'll get it in time for tomorrow. It's full of great articles. We also have one of my favorite things, and many people love this, the Age This section where you'll get a chance to view a deer from somewhere in the country and guess the age of it. And then in the next issue, you'll... Uh, learn what the answer is, at least what we think it is. So anyway, get the newsletter. Also, reminder to follow our social media accounts. Uh, there's just so much there from our Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. We are on all of them. Yes, even for the old people, we are on Facebook. So, And for the young people, we're on TikTok. But uh, just recent articles that you'll want to check out. There's a great article we just put out on screening cover. That's something I'm going to be doing more this year. So learn about that. Also, summer food plots. And there's also a species profile that we have put out recently on buckwheat, which is something that I used last year. I'll probably do it again this year. A uh, great summer annual to put out there in your food plot. So uh, be sure to check those out as well. All right, folks, with that, we're going to call it a show. We hope you enjoyed it. We really do. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.